Welcome to this episode of Consider It Black Lit. I am Kim Singleton, your host. And for those of you tuning in for the first time, Consider It Black Lit highlights films, television programs, and stage plays featuring African-Americans up front and behind the scenes. We also discuss social issues that impact our communities. So thank you for tuning in, and we hope you continue to tune in each week. Today, I am excited to have a writer, director, producer, and overall creative, and the director of the documentary, Bad Things Happen in Philadelphia. Welcome, Kyra Knox. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited for this. Yes, yes. You know, I I, um, I saw a clip of you accepting an award for your documentary. I think it was at the Black Film Fest. And uh, the Michelle Film Festival is the one you the probably- Michelle, yeah. The Michelle mm-hmm. Film Festival. And um, the fact that it was focused on gun violence in our community, and after I saw the documentary, saw that you focused on an organization that was trying to do something about it, I just felt like this is something that has to be on my show that I have to share with my audience. So thank you for coming on, and thank you for being so responsive to me. I appreciate that. No problem. Thank you for having me. Yes. So we're going to start off. Tell my audience about you. Like, tell me what your background is and how you came into filmmaking. Um, I am a theater kid at heart. Um, I started out when I was six years old at Freedom Theater. Um, and then I went to the High School of Creative or Performing Arts right here in Philly. Um, and then I also performed um, in New York for the off-Broadway off uh, show Corner Wars. Um, They ended up winning the 2003 Oppenheimer Award. Um, And then around that same time, my grandfather, he passed away. And my last conversation with him was, you know, Pop Pop, can you put money in my account so I could get my head shots printed out? Because back in the day, you had to go to a professional to get those printed out. And the next day, he passed away from a heart attack. I didn't know how to deal with that. Um, and in my mind, because I was only 18, 19 at the time, I internalized that it was my it was my fault. Um, and then fast forward 10 years, because after that, I quit the arts. After our show was done, I was done. Um, I get I get engaged and I just felt like something was missing. And I realized that I missed the arts and I slowly started getting back into it, wrote my own one woman show called Inner Strength, which was my therapy to get through my grandfather's death. That ended up getting accepted into the United Solo International Festival. I performed that in New York. Um, And around that time, I started getting into producing. I was 34, asked my husband if I could quit my job to follow my dreams. And five years later, now I'm talking to you. (laughs) <laughs> oh, wow. Kudos to the hubby. All right. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about bad things happen in Philadelphia. What led up to you making this documentary? Like what inspired you to want to do this? So Gary Mills, who's featured in a documentary, um, he has a nonprofit called Shoot Basketball's Not People. And Gary is actually, he's my first cousin. Our mothers are sisters. So I watched his journey, you know, when he started um, the foundation and what Gary was trying to do was continue the work that our grandfather, my our grandfather that passed away, 
continue the work that he was doing because our grandfather was president of Concerned Black Men. So he was very instrumental on keeping kids off of the street and putting them in programs like chess, rowing. And with Gary, because he loves basketball and he was in all public in high school, went to college for basketball, he decided to continue our grandfather's legacy by utilizing basketball to keep the kids off of the street. So hearing his story and hearing these teen stories, it inspired me to make this film, which was originally only going to be a short film, but then I decided to turn into my very first feature because I felt as though we had something very special here. Yeah, very, very special. So you say Gary was your is your first cousin. How has his work affected you personally? Oh man, I I I commend my cousin. You know, I at times I don't know how he does it because. The thing is, is that he's also lost so many friends to gun violence. Um, when he first started an organization, he had already lost 13 of his friends to gun violence. And even while we were filming, he ended up losing two more friends to gun violence. Um, and so he's battling that grief, but then also mentoring these kids who are also losing their own friends and family members to gun violence. So you know, I commend what my cousin is doing and he has so much, um, so much strength, you know, and I'm just proud of him. I'm so proud of him. So I saw where um, Alan Iverson was an executive producer. Tell us how he became involved. So my executive producer, Mark Mims, um, he saw my original uh, trailer and that trailer I was putting out there, I was going to crowdsource for this film. Because once I decided to turn it into a feature, I felt like, okay, let me really try to get some funding. Um, my film sister introduced me to Mark. He asked me to jump on a call with him. He said, I know you don't know me from a can of paint, but please do not crowdsource this film. I am going to get you this funding. And so I took a leap of faith and I said, okay, I will not crowdsource. And it was because of his relationship, because Mark, um, he lives in Virginia and he's actually a Grammy winning producer. And because of his connections in Virginia, he knows Iverson and that team. And he showed them my sizzle. Um, Iverson loved it and called Mark and asked him, how can I be involved in this project? And um, Iverson lended me his name. He gave me his name, which gave me the stamp of approval and has been opening so many doors for not only the film, but also the nonprofits organizations that are part of this film. That, that's amazing, but it's an amazing piece of work. Um, it, and it really touches you because, you know, gun violence is so prevalent in our communities. Um, I noticed that you put a lot of footage of actual gun violence happening. Um, tell us, was it hard to get access to that footage? Were there any roadblocks to it? Tell us about that process. So the thing about documentaries, you know, we get to use the term at, uh, what is it, um, at use, you know? So we're allowed to use um, that footage in, in our documentaries, but it it was very, it was hard watching all of that, watching all of that footage because people realize that, this is really happening. And a majority of that footage, as you've seen, happened in during the daytime, you know, and some of those people, they just didn't care. I mean, they had their faces shown and everything. And it just goes to show how volatile 
um, the gun violence is here. And um, another thing that we did though, when we were looking for the footage, uh, we were purposely looking for footage that was not in the typical bad neighborhoods that they like to quote. Um, I had the film, um, it was more so the area that I grew up in, uptown, you know? People see the trees and the flowers and everything like that, but they don't realize that the gun violence is very much active just the way that it is in these so-called bad neighborhoods. So we definitely pinpointed our footage for that, for those areas. Yeah, it was definitely hard to watch, but I thought it was important that you kept it in there so people can see the magnitude and the gravity of it. And at the end of the day, these are our babies killing each other. It's just so sad. So I think your documentary is important because I think it will be part of the motivation to make people want to do something about it, or at minimum, at least supporting the organization like shooting basketballs and not people. So mm -hmm. kudos to you. Um, how did you choose the mothers of slaying young men to talk in the documentary? How did you go about making a choice and who to put in? So once I decided to turn this into a feature, I said, okay, we're showcasing my cousin Gary and his organization and how he's keeping the kids off of the street, right? But then it's like, okay, what about the aftermath? Um, and I ended up finding the nonprofit organization Mothers in Charge. And they are a group of mothers um, that have lost their own children um, to gun violence. I mean, Dr. Dorothy, she just celebrated the 20 years of Mothers in Charge. Um, but unfortunately, she lost her own son to gun violence over a parking dispute, you know? Um, and so I felt that it was very important to hear these stories and take the politics out of this, you know? Um, and I mean, Michelle, God, her story and how she lost Blaine, who was only 18 years old. I mean, it was, I, I can't, I can't even formulate the words, you know? Um, but I just felt like it was very important to hear from moms, from mothers. Yeah, that was important. And, um, it, you know, it was very emotional. I, I can't remember which mother it was, but it was one story where uh, her son got a certain to a certain age and she was like, oh, he finally made it. And then he got killed. Talk about how emotional it was for you as you were interviewing them, because you could kind of hear you speaking to them in the background. And how did you pull together the strength to really get through it. Because when I watched it, I, you know, I broke down in tears several times because it's just, these are our babies. And it's just, I just felt for the mothers. I still haven't gotten through it, to be honest. Um, it was hard. I mean, during those interviews, Bob, because a lot of this we filmed during, you know, COVID is still prevalent, obviously, but we filmed it like when, you know, we had masks on and everything. And by the end of some of those interviews, my mask was soaked, just soaked. And um, then you you go into editing, right? So mm -hmm. then you're hearing these stories over and over and over again. And then you're dealing with the, what do you keep in? What do you keep out? You know, um, and I, I tell everyone that I really should have went through therapy and I should be in therapy right now going through this because I've been living with this film now for three years. Wow. So that's 
three years of trauma, just like inside of me. And then, you know, even during the post-production of this film, like I lost my own cousin to gun violence and he was only 37. So it's, I'm still trying to get through it and I haven't yet. And I think that once, once this film is, once we're through the film festival circuit and everything, um, I think that's when I'm going to, I'm going to go to therapy because I have to get all of this out. So you mentioned um, earlier, or it may have been before we start taping, um, that you were a commercial producer. Yes. How has your work as a commercial producer helped you in putting this documentary together? Um. So what helped is that uh, <laughs> I can juggle a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and the thing is, is that I produced this film as well. I didn't have a producer. So I directed and I produced it. And um, it just... It helped with my relationships as far as the crew as well, because I work with uh, with everyone in the crew on a professional basis. So when I wanted to make something impactful, they were just down to just help me out, even though we didn't have a robust budget, a robust budget, mm-hmm. you know, so my connections that I've built in the commercial film industry really helped me pull off uh, this documentary. Yeah. Well, very well done. Very well done. What do you want audiences to take away after they see this movie? Like, what do you, what's your expectation of them or what's your goal in terms of the impact this film should have on people? I want this to inspire change, Mm -hmm. not just in Philadelphia, but in our country. We have a major drug problem. I mean, drug problem. Well, we have a major drug problem too, but we have a major gun problem. Mm -hmm. Um, I also want this to inspire people to donate to the smaller nonprofits because they are the ones that are boots on the ground every day doing this work, but they're not getting the funding, you know, to really have their organizations to the full potential that it can be. You know, I have witnessed my cousin go broke, you know, trying to, you know, take care of these kids and watch over these kids and have these programs for these kids. Um, so that's what I want change and also donating to the smaller nonprofits that actually need the money versus these larger nonprofits. They're only doing programs for these kids once or twice a quarter, you mm-hmm. know, cause when I was a kid, there was lots of programs, you know, I could always go to the rec centers. I could always go to, um, my power officer, Steve, you know, but you're not, I was in drill team and this and that. But you're not seeing, and I don't see it in the area, and I still live in the same area that I grew up in. I don't see those programs anymore, you know? So that's what I really want, change and donating to these smaller nonprofits. I agree. I agree. Donating to the ones who have the boots on the ground, who are dealing with these kids every single day, because Mm -hmm. those are the organizations, those are the groups that are really going to make a change because the young people see them all yep. the time yeah exactly exactly yeah so your documentary won an award at the Michelle Film Festival tell us what award it won and how you felt about it and were you expecting it <laughs> um it won best outstanding uh feature documentary um oh man I was not expecting <laughs> to win um because I have very bad imposter syndrome um, and there were other phenomenal documentaries um, that were selected. And 
I'll never forget that feeling when I won. I will never because um, one, I it's the five year anniversary of me quitting my job to follow my dreams. Um, and two, I felt seen as a black woman in this industry, you know, and I had my husband right there and he was cheering me on. And for him to keep saying, I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud of you. It was it was the most amazing feeling. And then to find out this past weekend at the Hip Hop Film Festival in Harlem, we won Best Documentary and we won the Tupman Award for Art Through Activism. So to get these accolades and, you know, for people to get inspired by this film and now people are donating to these nonprofits. I mean, in the Bay Area, someone donated $10,000 to shoot basketballs, not people after watching this film. So everything that I could imagine and even more is now happening. And I'm, my heart is just filled with so much joy and emotion. And I, I'm blessed. I'm really blessed. And our me and Gary, our grandfather is smiling down on us because we're continuing his legacy. Gary through basketball and me through film. So it's been incredible. So tell me, what have people been coming up to you and saying about the film? Share that with us, because I know they probably had amazing comments. Uh, well, <laughs> one, when I was in Harlem, he had me, this guy had me cracking up. He was like this big, muscular guy. And he said to me, he says, I've been to so many movies and I never cry. You are the first person to make me cry during a movie. And don't tell anyone that because I'm from Brooklyn. <laughs> that was well, like guess what? You just shared it on the show, but you didn't say his name. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> um, I, I mean, people have told me that they cry. People have told me that I have taken them through an emotional journey. Um, people also told me that they appreciate the fact that the film is not all sad. There are parts that they laughed at. There are parts that made them smile so hard. Um, and then um, one thing that happened that gave me goosebumps, I was in LA and after the film was over, um, and you know the part where we talk about that young kid that was murdered, Don. Officer Steve talked about him and my cousin Gary talked about him. Um, and this was back when we were in high school. I might've been like a freshman or in eighth grade. And this woman came up to me afterwards and she said, Don was my cousin. And I said, what? And she said, yes, he was, he was my cousin. And she said, you gave me the gift of healing. She said, this was the first day in years that I actually told someone that I'm from Philadelphia. She said, I lost three brothers to gun violence. When I lost my cousin Don to gun violence, I left Philly and I never looked back. And she said, I was not expecting to see him on that screen. And she said, when I saw the thank yous and you listed his family and she said, they're going to be so proud of how you depicted his story with care um, and respect. Um, and she and she just thanked me. And I was just like, it gave me goosebumps. I'm telling you, this film is really making an impact. That's why I had to have you on my show and talk to you. It's just amazing. But let's, you had mentioned Officer Steve um, that was in the documentary. He was good too. Tell us how he became involved and how you know him and your relationship with him. He was me and Gary's uh, officer when we were kids. Oh, wow. 
It was our officer. We were in the pile program. Um, and I'll never forget because I I said, I said, we should have a pile officer. And I wanted to show that all white cops aren't bad. And Officer Steve was a pillar in our community. And even during the interview, he says on camera, you know, I was going to a black neighborhood. Um, I'm white and I'm a cop. How do I handle this? And what was important was what he said after that. I gave them respect. And then they gave respect back, you know? And I mean, he had us in so many different programs. And so I took a step. I reached out to the power organization. I said, hey, dude, can I have, you know, Officer Steve Brennan's information? Um, I want to reach out to him. I'm doing a documentary. And I sent him an email. And I'm like, he's not going to remember who we are. I mean, Gary's 40, I'm 39. He's not going to remember who we are. And when he wrote back, you know, I'm reading, I'm like, he don't remember me until he wrote PS. How's Gary's brother, Marlon? I never mentioned Marlon, Gary's mm -hmm. younger brother. And I was like, wow, he does remember us. And when we went to his home, he had newspaper clippings, he had photos, he remembered every single kid's name that was in the program. And what's beautiful is that Officer Steve is still doing the work today as a retired police officer. One thing that came through in the film is that he really cared about the community. Because yes. even when he was talking about one of the young men who was killed, you had Don. to stop filming because he was so broken up. He needed to step away and pull himself together. Um, mm -hmm. So I really appreciated you putting him in there and showing that there are people outside the community who who really care. I read that you were recent. You recently announced that you were a Sundance Fellow. Tell us about that and how that came to be and what that process and how you feel about the whole thing. I still can't believe I'm a Sundance Fellow. Um, I don't think I honestly I don't think it's going to hit me until I start the program in October. So I'm still in a little bit of denial because it's Sundance. You know, that's like the Harvard of the independent film industry. Um, my film sister, Edith, who is actually the person that introduced me to Mark Mims, my executive producer, she has this amazing Latinx um, script that she wrote. And this script has gotten her into the Paramount Writers Fellowship. It's gone to Gotham Labs, like all of these prestigious um, fellowships and labs. And people have tried to purchase her film, but they wouldn't let her direct it, you know? Mm. And my imposter syndrome, right? Uh, the Sundance applications opened up, I believe it was November. I waited until two weeks before the applications were closed to ask her if I could produce her film. And she said, why didn't you just ask me earlier? And I was like, I thought you would say no. I'm not a, I'm not a narrative producer. My work is prim primarily in documentary and commercial. And within two weeks, we got that application together um, she started working on a pitch deck. We did a lot of that. And she was fussing at me the whole time because I waited. <laughs> and then um, on my way to New York, the day that um, the last day that applications were going to be accepted, I was on an Amtrak train on my way for a commercial shoot. And I text my director, my DP. I said, hey, guys, I'm turning my phone off. I'm going to submit to Sundance. Like I finally got the guts to do it. And I was, and I said to her, I was like, 
ain't gonna make it in, you know? I, I was just like, yeah, at least I tried. And next thing you know, I make it to the next round. I'm like, okay. And so now I'm going through another process and getting the materials together. And so I'm like, okay, I'm happy I made it through the first round, but I ain't gonna make it to the next round, you know? <laughs> Not gonna make it. And I'm on a commercial shoot and I get this email, like, you've made it to the final round. I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> and again, so I, I do the interview and I'm like stumbling and I'm like stuttering. I'm like, I'm sorry. I was like, I have major imposter syndrome. I can't believe I'm I'm here right now talking to you. And I hung up. I was like, guys, at least I'm a finalist. At least I was a finalist. There's no way. Like, I screwed that whole interview up. And then I got the email um, a month later that I made it in and I could not stop crying because five years ago, I quit. I took a leap of faith, right? And didn't know how I was going to be a producer or a director or a filmmaker. And five years later, I'm getting accepted into Sundance fellowship and winning awards for a film and working with the Philadelphia Eagles and like all of these things are happening so it's just it's been it's been a wild fulfilling but validating year for me sorry mm -hmm. I mean to start crying I could be that's, such a cry you know what that's all right because when you think about how you're blessed you can't help but cry and yeah. throw that imposter syndrome out the window and mm -hmm. it just shows that your heart is in the right place. And I think that's why I reached out to you because I just saw that little clip and I was like, I've got to talk to her. You know, your heart is there, you're giving and you're receiving. I think it's important too, you know, for women to know that it's never too late to follow your dreams. Because when I decided to quit my job, I was only 30, I was 34, mm -hmm. you know, in their minds. And they would say it a lot to my husband, like, oh, she should be settling down. Y'all need to have a child. Why she get to do whatever she want to do? And it was like all these knives like being thrown at us, you know? And it's like, look at me now. I'm 39 years old, going to be 40 next year. And I'm doing it. I mm -hmm. am following my dreams, you mm -hmm. know? I'm accomplishing a lot of stuff. And if I would have listened to those naysayers, you know, I wouldn't be here now. Well, that's wonderful. I could talk to you all day, but <laughs> we're running out of time. And I just want to thank you so much for coming on and, and sharing your journey with us and, and sharing with us about bad things happen in Philadelphia. They do, but you're one of the wonderful things that come out of Philadelphia. Thank you and so much. <laughs> So audience, oh, I did want you to tell my audience how they could stay up to date on what you're doing. Like, how can they follow you on social media? Where should they go? Um, I'm on Instagram and Twitter, X, whatever they're calling it nowadays. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, it's at Kyra Knox underscore. So it's just my full name underscore. And if you ever want to see any of my work, it's on www.kyranox.com. Make sure you support Kyra Knox. And when you get an opportunity, please see bad things happen in Philadelphia. It will move you. And until next time, consider yourself blacklit.